Discretionary listener participation is advised for the following pro wrestling podcast. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Stick to Wrestling. My name is John McAdam. This is the Stick to Wrestling podcast, where if you give us 60 minutes, perhaps indeed, we'll give you a wicked good and raw bone podcast. Stick to wrestling, because it's 2024, everyone has to have a podcast, and damn it, I'm someone. Uh, Before we get rolling, I want to invite you to follow me on Twitter. Just put in the name John McAdam and follow the guy with the Stick to Wrestling logo as his avatar. If you would like to donate to the Stick to Wrestling podcast, it is a free podcast, completely ad-free. You can PayPal me at prowrestlingarchives at gmail.com. People seem to enjoy this last time. Give me one nickel per episode. We're at episode uh, 270-something. I don't know, 290-something. That's right. So that's fourteen fifty an episode. Just say, here's a nickel an episode, you schmuck. Here's your fourteen seventy, <laughs> and I'll be a very happy person. With me is Steve Generelli, and he's going to tell you a little bit about the Stick to Wrestling Facebook group. Well, the Facebook group has is, is been busier than ever, and we've had some really good episodes, and I think it's really getting people... Uh, all ready to uh, leave us some good feedback. And uh, S.K. Lee is among them. And he had uh, a great post today where he was speculating about uh, the British Bulldogs and uh, what would have happened if uh, Dynamite hadn't been injured and if he had stayed uh, in the WWF with the Davy Boy and and what would their endgame in the WWF had been. And uh, that was a very interesting thread. Uh, we also had Mark SK. Some days you just can't get rid of a bomb league. <laughs> yeah, no. And Mark Truitt had a question, and I think you know the answer to this, uh, John, as far as, you know, uh, about the old MSG house shows that there were usually most times on a Monday night, uh, but occasionally they had a rare, maybe a Sunday matinee or um, maybe a card on a different day. But, um, but I think you know the reason why that they were usually on a Monday night. Uh, I think they were usually on the, on Monday night because it was an undesirable night for the uh, for the Knicks and the Islanders, and the, you know the WWF just grabbed it and that became the tradition. Yeah, that, that, that's speculation on my part, but that's what I think. No, no, I, I think you're absolutely right. It was the Knicks and Rangers, of course. Being me being a big Ranger fan, I had to put that in there. But they, uh, um, but yeah, you're absolutely right. Uh, the the older Vince McMahon had those shows like you know, booked out on the calendar of the garden for, you know, well over a year in advance. And uh, and that gave him a chance to book all these great cards in his huge uh, booking book that's uh, now legendary. And then the last of, of the post uh, for this week, uh, Dr. Nick Kalaitis had a great post about uh, wrestlers whose uh, careers were cut short in their prime and mentioned so many of the great wrestlers that just died young, like uh, Road Warrior Hawk, Kerry Von Erich, Terry Gordy, and, and we can just go on and on. And, and uh, it was a very interesting uh, thread, though. And, I mean, there's just so many names. Uh, <laughs> I mean, do you have any uh, that come to your mind, John, as like ones that you really wish had been able to uh, sustain and continue? I mean, you know, this one, you know, my number one would be Gino Hernandez. Right. And, you know, we've discussed it on the show, on some of the really earlier shows, like, you know, shows with single digits, like what would have (laughs) happened with Gino Hernandez. And and to me, that's like, 
you know, uh, just a shotgun of possibilities. Like, he could have been a big star in the WWF, or he could have been living in a crappy apartment in Dallas, you know, in 1988, trying to hang on. I mean, it really just a tremendous spectrum of possibilities. And, you know, this answer, another one, that I give, you know, always pisses people off. They're like, what do you think would happen had Magnum TA not crashed his Porsche? And I'd be like, uh, I think Magnum TA had, had already peaked and I think he would have gone the way of the Rock and Roll Express and he might have been a big star in Smoky Mountain Wrestling. Once again, you, you don't know. I mean, you know, Dusty, when he was alive, was saying that, you know, he was going to make Magnum TA the NWA champion, which it's an easy thing to say when you don't, well, you don't actually have to do it. Um, but I, I just can't see Magnum usurping uh, Ric Flair. No, I, I think you're right on that, unfortunately. I mean, we all kind of wish that Magnum could have reached his uh, peak or destiny. Um, my guy that I, I really wish had been given that uh, chance to prove himself again would have to be Adrian Adonis just because uh, from what we know and what we've seen from those pictures from Japan, uh, he had lost a lot of weight. He had kind of gotten back into that old uh, 83 type Adrian shape, uh, you know, a lot uh, better than he was as adorable Adrian. And uh, I think he had something to prove. And, you know, I would love to have seen him resurrect himself in WWF or WCW, but that unfortunately wasn't meant to be. I was told before that van crashed that Adrian Adonis, you know, he had a a verbal agreement with Dusty Rhodes that he was going to come back when once he got into reasonable shape, which he kind of was close to being he was going to get a run in jcp uh back as the old adrian adonis with the black leather jacket no more adorable adrian yeah yeah and that that answers about to relax with trudy the whole whole world would know by now what all that meant who knows Adrian was a, was a crazy cat. If you listen to some of his interviews, even when he was adorable, Adrian, he was all over the place. Uh, Steve, one thing I just wanted to share with everyone. I saw something I thought was very funny today. I don't know why. I was watching some old championship wrestling from Florida uh, from 1986, and they had Kendo Nagasaki as the guest referee. Now, picture Kendo Nagasaki, and then picture him in a black and white striped referee shirt it was hilarious steve i don't mind telling you a, tr- a truly special guest referee <laughs> really and also steve um why I, i've been meaning to mention this while i was preparing for the starcade 88 35th anniversary show that i did about a month ago with christian body I read one of your I came across one of your letters in the Wrestling Observer newsletter in 1988, and you were advising people not to see Roddy Piper's uh, new flick at the time, Hell Comes to Frogtown, and I just want you to know that I have heeded that advice for over a third of a century now. Well, well, back then, uh, probably my closest wrestling friend uh, who I met through The Observer was uh, this lady, Teresa Marie, who I'm sure you re- would remember from the early days of The I Observer. I remember her. She had a thing against Paulie Dangerously. Well, she, she was uh, <laughs> one of the nicest, nicest people. You know, we always hear about... Uh, you know, uh, George Ann Macropolis, what a wonderful lady she was. Well, this Teresa D. Marie was kind of like that to me. I mean, she was 
just the nicest fan in the world. And uh, I think we started corresponding through the Observer, and uh, she sent me this huge uh, manila envelope just filled with uh, Piper results. She was just a huge Piper fan, and she sent me a, a VHS tape that had, like, his entire career highlights. You know, I got to see the beer bottle breaking over his head in Portland and uh, him uh, with, uh, you know, the the famous Lonnie Main uh, promos from San Francisco and you know, all this great footage and she was just so nice. Uh, but, um, but yeah, why am I telling you this? I don't, I can't remember, but she was really a very nice person. Yeah, you probably with. went to see hell, hell comes to Frogtown with her or something like that. Yeah, yeah. She, no, she wanted me to see it. And, uh, and I think she sent me like a bootleg copy and, uh, and I just had no interest. I just did not want to see that movie. No, it it you know it, I that's right. It didn't even make the theater. It went straight to video. Yes. Yeah, I, it's funny. I do remember Teresa, and the thing that jumps into my head, and Teresa, no offense if you're listening to this, but you know, I I remember I was probably at one of the great American bashes like down in Baltimore yeah. and we were passing around the Observer right. and there was a letter from her, you know, kind of bashing Polly dangerously and we're like, oh man, another frustrated Roddy Piper fan. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, but anyway, t- time to get on to, to the show, Steve. Um, the National Expansion episodes we have done, I was a little trepidatious coming in thinking that, you know, these are just way too specific. Uh, and I was a little bit nervous about the response that we, we've gotten. And the response has been tremendous. Thank you, everyone. Um you know, I have people saying that, you know, wow, I'm really re- reliving my childhood here. And then on the other end, I have people saying I never knew anything about all this and I'm interested. So thank everyone. And to continue along those lines, we put up a mailbag on the Facebook group, which is another reason why you should join. And we took questions on the national expansion itself. And I'll tell you what, Steve, they're all good questions. So we can just go in order. Justin Brown asked, if you're Vince... And for some reason, you have to keep you have to keep Bob Backlund around. What do you do with him? In other words, let's say Vince McMahon is the booker and not the owner, and Bob's dad is the promoter. What do you do with him? <laughs> well, well, my initial my initial answer on that was, uh, you know, just let him go. But if if you had to had to keep him around, I, I guess the thing I would probably do would be maybe. Uh, make him uh, either a scout or a coach. I mean, he had the wrestling part down. And, of course, this was 1984, a time when the wrestling was being really de-emphasized. So... I was going to say, I, I don't want Bob 1984, Bob Backlund coaching anybody. Well, maybe, but maybe him scouting, like maybe like send him to Calgary, send him to places where he could look for talent and, and then bring bring him in, you know, as far as just finding wrestlers, not, not like showmanship people. I mean, at that time in 84, he, I mean, Vince really had the pick of the litter. I mean, he could call anybody or get anybody to come in and, and, and there was so much talent at that time that was circulating, you know, veterans and young guys and guys in their prime. Uh, so it wasn't really an issue. But uh, I mean, I can't think of anything other worthwhile to give Backlund to do. What would you what would you do with him? 
Well, actually, Steve, there were some stars that uh, turned Vince down. Um, I know Ted DiBiase turned him down, and Vince supposedly made him an offer that he would give him the he would make him the Intercontinental Champion, which is a little bit weird because what I've always heard is Vince never told you what he was going to do with you. Um, even when Ted was the Million Dollar Man, uh, Vince did not tell him until he had you know pen to paper, so Ted couldn't steal the gimmick. Um, I know Dusty turned him down. I know Ric Flair turned him down. Those are the only ones I know about. But anyway, if I had to keep Bob Backlund, had to, I would just put him down the card as just another guy, and you need guys. And he would always have this sheen of being a former WWF champion. He held the title for six years. And but I would just like have him in the middle of the card, maybe use him as a top guy in smaller arenas uh, up and down the Northeast where he has name value. Uh, one thing I, I not to ruin the question. I think someone did ask this question. Like you know, would you have turned Bob Backlund heel? No, I would not have. And you know, have him go up against Hogan? No, I think the the WWF had better options. And I know some of you are saying, "Whoa, what are you talking about?" Bob was the champion for so long, and he was the good guy, and now you have that storyline. The WWF, in my opinion, had better options. Yeah, again, this was 84, and they had, you know, really, they were the people that they were getting in from Mid-Atlantic, like uh, Prime Piper, Prime Valentine, Prime Steamboat. I mean, these were, these were the, like an all-star team, the guys that they were bringing in, and they didn't need to rely on a Bob Backlund, who was essentially stale. I mean, they were still promoting to the Northeast, but they were promoting to the entire nation now. And Vince knew that Backlund's time was over with. It was just the writing was on the wall. It totally was. And if Vince didn't know it, I mean, you know, I've said this before, the fact that Bob Backlund, he's now a free agent in the middle of the hottest wrestling war that we've seen in our lifetime. And no one was interested. Like JCP used him on top. Um, in some northeast cities like against Ric Flair and you know people just weren't into it if you're into NWA wrestling you know that's not what Bob Backlund was I just wanted to throw this in too Steve I get kind of a reputation for for cracking on Bob Backlund, or no, cracking on post-82 Bob Backlund. Before that, he was fine. Uh, I get a little bit of a reputation, not for cracking on Ole Anderson, the wrestler, but as the booker and the guy who, you know, oh, that was the shits, whatever. (laughs) Uh, Is there anyone else on that list? (laughs) Because there's going to be. Okay, all right. We, sometime in the month of February, I hope to uh, have a very special guest on to do the 1984 year-end awards, and oh boy, I'm going to torpedo this one guy over and over again. He'll probably, at the end of it, you'll... You'll have to tune in to see who it is, but I, I think this guy's going to going to eclipse both Ole Anderson and, you know, once again, Booker Ole Anderson and post-82 Bob Backlund as the guy that I just kick around mercilessly. That, that's a cliffhanger, folks. Uh, the cliffhanger. But, but now, now I've got a question wrap your alley, I'll ask you, and this is from John Ware. 
He says, I didn't really watch much of Georgia Championship Wrestling, so I don't have the experience, but does WWF on 605 deserve the negative criticism it gets? Some of the WTBS shows leading up to WrestleMania were good. Well, John, my man from Pittsburgh, John Coco Beware, thank you for the question. I think it deserves every bit of criticism it gets, and I'll tell you why. Now, for those not knowing, uh, I believe it was July 23rd, 1984. Uh, We're all, you know, on, in front of our TVs, looking forward to a little Georgia Championship Wrestling, something that's not the WWF. My, you know, I, I only got in '84, you know, WWF. I got plenty of that. I got an hour of World Class, and then I got about four hours of Georgia Championship Wrestling, two of which were first run. And so, in other words, the good stuff. And I, I come home. And I sit in front of my TV, and you know what? I think it was July 14th or 15th. I don't know. But anyway, um, And all of a sudden, Freddie Miller introduces the show, and he brings on Vince McMahon, and I was shocked. And we'll talk more about this, you know, July 2024, when we talk about, you know, when we have our national expansion shows. But it it was stunning, and... They the first show like you know first of all I already I, I had plenty of WWF I wanted something else, uh, but that's not about the quality of the show. The problem with the quality of the show was they were not running usually first run matches. Uh, they were running sh- matches that we had already seen on like Championship Wrestling or USA Network uh, on All American Wrestling. They had some good stuff like that, like the second edition of the show. They had the uh, a show from the New, New Jersey Meadowlands, which and they aired the main event, which was Hulk Hogan and Andre the Giant in a handicap tag team match against uh, John Studd, Adrian Adonis, and Dick Murdoch. So that was kind of cool, but that wasn't the norm. And then Ted Turner finally says to Vince, "Hey." You know, I don't want reruns on my WTBS show. You, you need to provide original con- content. And they flew the B and C guys to the studios in Atlanta uh, to do the tapings. And, you know, you're, you're having guys like Salvatore Belomo and SD Jones going over, which is kind of cool and different. But, it, you know, once again, you're not having all-star wrestling. You're having no-star wrestling. So, overall, I thought the show was really bad in a way. And we had a, a, a show about this, once again, a, maybe five over five years ago on Stick to Wrestling on why Black Saturday was a good thing because we had to put up with a, not even a year of the WWF. And then we got JCP which let's face it blew the doors off of you know late Georgia championship wrestling so it was all worth it but at the same time you know those I thought those shows stunk Steve do you have and by the way we will be playing clips uh, from those shows beginning in July because I do have a lot of them Steve your thoughts on the matter well well, I was going to ask you a question because I know you're more of an authority on this topic than I am I wanted to ask you as far as you know did they ever do any like uh, like WWF angles in the, in the studio, like where they did the six oh five show? I cannot remember they're doing a single angle on that show. 
I don't. I don't think they did a any kind of a headline match. I don't think they did an angle. I think they. Uh, I know they just held on to it until WrestleMania came and went. They wanted to use that as another outlet for you know to, pr- to promote WrestleMania, and then the week. Uh, not the Sunday, yeah, it was the Saturday after WrestleMania, April 6, 1985, uh, you know, we have the guys from the Carolinas on, which was really cool, and um, yeah, I, I think, you know, it, it, they did have Hulk Hogan and Mr. T show up at the studio once, which was a big deal, you know, Mr. T was a household name, as a matter of fact, by that time, so was Hulk Hogan, um, and it surprised me a little bit that they showed up, but, but that was like the one thing they did that was pretty cool, and let's face it, by the time, by in March 1985, we really didn't need any more Hulk Hogan and Mr. T. No, that, that that's very true. Uh, um, but, but you can hit me with a question. I, I didn't really have much more to add to that. Okay. Nolan Lake asked, at the start of the expansion, is it plausible to say that Calgary had the best territory at the time? Uh, my answer on that one is I, I don't I don't think so at all. I mean uh, I think to and I'm, I'm I guess I'll just speak for myself. I mean I mean looking back on it now I think Calgary had uh, you know a good reputation for being a good like a better work rate territory and they did have you know people like the Bulldogs were there, Bret Hart was there. Uh, you know, there had been guys who were breaking in there, like a younger Jake Roberts had been there, Junkyard Dog had been there, Honky Tonk Man had been there, uh, and and I guess it was it was a respected territory, but it was really fairly small town grassroots. I mean, they had, maybe had better workers than the average promotion, but. I don't think it was really that different than a Portland or, you know, it wasn't really like a, a big competitive promotion like, say, WWF or AWA or Mid-Atlantic where you had this roster of big name stars getting paid big salaries. Uh, uh, no offense, Nolan, but I think Calgary was uh, uh, kind of a, you know, like a, a deep cut uh, popular among the insider fans, but not like a, really a, a well-known or super well-regarded amongst just the casual fans. Unlike most people, I have seen some Calgary from 1984. I do have some footage, probably about eight or ten hours of, of footage from 84. And it's like Steve said, if, if you're into work rate, it's a great promotion. And, you know, I would say, well, if you're into work rate, then go watch New Japan or All Japan. But this is in English, so I get to see. Yeah, I understand that benefit, um, but at the same time, you're you're looking at guys who are using Calgary as a springboard to get to the next springboard that could hopefully get them to the WWF. Uh, Brett and the Bulldogs are the exception here, uh, which had more to do with you know uh, uh, Stu Hart selling out to Vince McMahon in the first place. But, uh, Steve, I, I don't know how much Calgary you've ever seen. The booking, doesn't matter what year it is, the booking is always atrocious, and I mean atrocious. And they come up with, like, stupid names for guys like Biff Wellington. Right. And, you know, it's it just, it, that part of it always turned me off. Yeah, I, I th- but I think, you know, now it's been, you know, what, 30, 40 years later. I mean, people look back fondly on it. I mean, there was that great book, uh, 
on the Calgary promotion that's out that really discussed everything from the Stu Hart days to, uh, you know, the final days with Owen and other, you know, y- younger towns, Chris, ba- Chris Benoit breaking in. Uh, so, I mean, it's look, looked upon very fondly and nostalgically, uh, but um, yeah, I, I wouldn't say it was, was really close to being the best territory. No, I mean, I remember getting Calgary in like 87, 88, and it was really good. They had uh, Owen Hart, who was phenomenal. Chris Benoit was phenomenal. Mackensing. Mackensing was funny at the mic. He wasn't very good in the (laughs) ring, but he was a great interview. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, Brian Pillman, his his team with Bruce Hart was actually good. If you can carry Bruce Hart, you're a hell of a wrestler. (laughs) Uh, But once again, you know, at at the same time, the booking was always atrocious, and they always did stupid stuff, you know, like uh, Karachi Vice, because I I guess the Hearts, you know, or uh, didn't like Pakistani people or something, (laughs) and they portrayed them as heels. By the way, do you, Steve, do you remember the name of that Calgary book? Was it called Waking Up With Your Eyebrows Shaved Off? <laughs> no, I think it's called Pain and, Pain and Passion or something, but but no, I know what you mean. That's, that's funny. That's really funny. And all, I mean, it was an all-timer of a, a, all-timer of a, uh, a Rivers territory, Apparently. if you must. Uh, but anyway, all right. Ten Jed writes, who would have been a great fit for the WWF? I like this question. Who would have been a great fit for the WWF at the time that wasn't there? I say Boogie Woogie Man would have been huge in the mid-80s WWF. Steve, do you have any ideas? Well, I, I think uh, this, you know, from my all my years of research and reading, I, I, I get the impression, and I could be wrong on this, but I get the impression that the two major name wrestlers that Vince really wanted to avoid when the national expansion were Dusty Rhodes and Jim, Jimmy Valiant. I mean, Jimmy Valiant at this stage was was Howard Hughes. You know, he was he was really you know past his prime. I mean, I, I mean, d- don't get me wrong. He like we've said on prior shows, and uh, Bo James can testify too. I mean, he, no one was better at selling out those middle to smaller buildings in the Carolinas, no doubt. But WWF, especially in the expansion era, they were looking for guys that were in their prime, in their peak, great bodies, guys like Orndorff, uh, you know, even even guys that wouldn't get a huge push, like a Brian Blair, guys who were really fit and in good shape. Um, they weren't looking for guys that looked like a Boogie Woogie or a Dusty Rhodes. They wanted to – I think that Vince was happy having uh, the other competitor promotion go heavy on the Dusty Rhodes, go heavy on the Boogie Woogie, and that way his guys like Orndorff and Hogan and the, the real body guys would stand out uh, much more. You see, I, I was thinking about this. You know, Jimmy Valiant – as the Boogie Woogie Man would have been really interesting in the WWF, just as a change of pace guy, and he would have, you know, and plus you would have freaked out everyone in the Northeast that's, <laughs> yeah, that was used to handsome Jimmy Valiant, and now you've got this guy with the long beard, and he, you know, he, he looks like, you know, frankly, he lives in a shelter. Um, and, and like, you know, but they, I, I would have been like, okay, it would have been something different, it would have been something interesting, you know, to kind of have. Uh, the town drunk character in the WWF. Now I'm like, wait a minute. Vince doesn't want the town drunk character. He's he's catering to kids. Right. So that's one reason why it would have never happened. If you, if I had to pick one guy who I think 
would have been an interesting fit in the WWF who never came in and it felt like he never got consideration was Iceman King Parsons. I think you could have, A, used another African-American babyface. I thought he had his charisma. He had that hairstyle that no one else had in 1983. Uh, I think he would have been a really good fit. Steve, do you have anyone? Well, uh, I'll, I'll, uh, I'm going to give credit to, to this answer to all of our Facebook uh, people on the Stick to Wrestling page, because these, these are the two answers that I see the most often, especially when we're, we're getting ready for WrestleMania 2. I hear people always say, God, I wish it was Nikita against uh, Hogan at WrestleMania 2. And some people say, God, I wish it was Brody against Hogan at WrestleMania 2. Um, those names, Stan Hansen too. I mean, we saw the Hansen... Uh, Hogan match eventually in Japan and even uh, Stan let him go over in Japan. I mean, those guys had been roommates during uh, Hogan's first run in New York when they were in an apartment together in New Jersey, I believe. But, Mm -hmm. uh, but still, I mean, uh, Stan Hansen, it would have been something to see him have a a, a run in uh, New York or on the Northeast one final time, but uh, it wasn't meant to be. No, it wasn't. And uh, by the way, Stan Hansen, people in Japan look at wrestling differently. When he did that uh, job for Hogan in 1990, it was like, oh, he, you know, he's a hero now because he was the the guy who did the right thing for business. And yeah, Hansen was a big guy, but I mean, he, here's the thing: he had heat with Vince Sr. over God knows what, probably <laughs> because he was wrestling for uh, for Baba instead of Inoki, and Vince Sr. was you know heavily in bed with Inoki and. So was Junior at one point. And, you know, I think Vince Jr. probably had no interest in Stan Hansen over that. Yeah, yeah, that could be. And we forget. I mean, Stan Hansen was the AWA champ in 86. So it wasn't really like there was any time that Stan Hansen really wanted to come there. I mean, like you said, he was making huge money in Japan like Brody was. I mean, Brody could have got came in before the terrible thing that happened happened. But, uh, but, but those are some of the names that I regret that had never come in because it would have been exciting to see them come in. Yeah, it's funny. You're talking Brody Hanson. I'm like, oh, Iceman King Parsons, this mid-card guy. No, well, class. that's good, too, though. That's a good, that's a good one. Uh, well, hey, I, I owe you a question here, so let me read one. Um, Ian Tan asks, and this is an interesting one, was there, any, was there any promoter who would have honestly stopped the national expansion? Yes. There's, to me, there's only one. He had a puncher's chance. You know, and it's it's funny. Well, uh, let me throw the name. Of course, Bill Watts. Mm-hmm. Bill Watts would have had an outsider's chance. He had no problem taking on the WWF head to head, criticizing their promotion on his television, uh, running you know uh, uh, old matches like Steve Williams, you know Doctor Death against King Kong Bundy from 1983, and Bill Watts is referring to Bundy, one of the WWF's top guys, as an overweight pachyderm. <laughs> Um, so Watts would have gone after it differently, but I will say this. Let's say there's another universe where, and this actually came reasonably close to happening, um, not reasonably is the key word here. Let's say Bill Watts gets the WTBS package instead of Jim Crockett, right? Mm-hmm. Now, I say that would have been the best uh, scenario where Vince could have been beaten. But let's say he got it and he failed, and he easily could have, Bill Watts being Bill Watts and having the excesses that he has. 
I could be on this show in 2024 saying, man, if Jim Crockett had only gotten that spot, his his you know track record in the Carolinas was was spotless. He had Ric Flair, he had Ricky Steamboat, he brought in Dusty Rhodes. That was the road. But you know, so you never know. But we know what happened with Crockett. We'll never know what could have happened with Watts. What do you think, Steve? Well, I, I love uh, I love Bill Watts as a booker in the 80s and a promoter in the 80s. I mean, I thought he was probably about the best there was. But, but I will say um, for Crockett and Crockett's defense, having Flair and Dusty is kind of like his uh, uh, two focal points of the promotion that really got people's eyes on the product. And you had all these great workers underneath, like the Tully and Arns and the Midnight Express and Jimmy Cornette, people like that. I mean, uh, I mean, I, I don't see, I don't see uh, the great Bill Watts having uh, like headliners that would be equivalents of a Dusty or or um, Flair. I mean, I mean, yeah, a Duggan, peak Duggan in in uh, UWF maybe. Uh, they had other guys. I mean, peak DiBiase would be another one. But I mean, as we watch history play out, uh, you know, Crockett with his his you know money and and a huge time slot on TBS and Dusty and Flair and a, a roster of all stars. They couldn't make it go. I I really I feel like the same fortune would have would have happened to Watts and his crew. I mean, maybe a, a great roster and he had a great system going, but I don't see him having enough star power to really make it work. Ah, counterpoint. Let's hear it. When Bill Watts was on WTBS for those six weeks in uh, 19, early 1985, he got the hour on Sunday, and it was before baseball started. Mid-South Wrestling was the highest rated show on WTBS, and that includes the WWF, who had Roddy Piper and Hulk Hogan and all of those guys. I think had Bill Watts, had he gotten that spotlight for Hacksaw, Jim Duggan, Ted DiBiase, Steve Williams, The Rock and Roll Express, Jake Roberts, Terry Taylor, etc., I agree that none of them were as big a star in 1985 than Dusty Rhodes and Ric Flair. Totally agree. Mm-hmm. But when you have that spotlight, you can create a bigger star. And now that Crockett is now relying on syndication and you're on cable, you you Bill Watts may have had the ability to lure Ric Flair, Dusty Rhodes, etc. away from Crockett. It's possible. I, I mean, I mean, Flair, Flair was really uh, getting lots of financial help from the Crockett family. I mean, he was having even major tax issues then. And, and Dusty, I mean, Dusty loved having his ego uh, fluffed or however you want to put it, uh, being like kind of the, the head guy, the head of creative at Crockett. I don't think he would have taken well to being like the number two creative guy under Bill Watts. I mean, it certainly didn't work in the early nineties at TBS when they were together there. But, uh, but you know, w- what you're saying is very interesting. I mean, I think we've all in a romantic way felt like, you know, Bill Watts had ever gotten that slot for a long term that God, he would have, he would have been the game changer. But I, I think it's just a lot of, you know, romanticism for those times. I don't think, you know, in the long term, you're not going to beat uh, Vince with Hogan and Savage and Piper and the people that he had. 
No, and you know, like I said, I, I thought he had a puncher's chance. I think at the end of the day, had Watts gotten the spot, we would have seen a similar result. But you know, you made two good points, Steve. Number one, um, you know, Ric Flair, his relationship with Jim Crockett. Jim Crockett Jr. was in Ric Flair's wedding party mm-hmm. when he married Beth. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you're right, Rick, you know, Crockett had gotten Flair out of some jams, and Rick never left the the NWA until Jim Crockett Jr. was long gone. You also make an excellent point about Dusty. When Dusty, you know, when, when Watts brought in Dusty Rhodes for a big appearance, Dusty would do jobs for Cro- for for Watts. He wouldn't do jobs for himself. But he'd do jobs for Watts, and he wouldn't have been the booker for Bill Watts, or at least eh, maybe he would have, but Bill Watts would have had final say, you know, unlike Jim Crockett Jr., who kind of stepped aside. And, um, yeah, I, I don't think Bill Watts would have—I I think Dusty would have had more power. Oh, I know Dusty would have had more power in the Carolinas, and, you know, that that's important to people, and it's important to Dusty Rhodes. He was he was not used to being one of the boys anymore. Well, that's a great question, Ian Todd, and uh, thank you for queuing that up for us. Um, and now you owe me a question, so go ahead. <laughs> Sean Wazinski, and I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, do we know of any talent during this time period that Vince really wanted but never got? Oh, darn it. I think I already answered that. He wanted Harley. Oh, Sean mentioned he wanted Harley to no show, so that's another one. He wanted the Von Erichs, which he knew he was never going to get, but he wanted a working relationship with Fritz, which he got for a hot minute in 1986, but nothing ever came of it. Uh, Steve, any thoughts from you on this? Um, you know, we we talked about it briefly on the show before. I mean, he, he even got Jerry Blackwell briefly, and Jerry Blackwell apparently fell asleep at the taping and said, this isn't for me. He, he didn't want to travel all over the country. I'm sure, you know, being at Jerry's size, uh, being uh, traveling every which way in the country wouldn't have been that pleasurable. But uh, I never thought of that. You're right, though. Yeah, that, that would have been not really the most uh, nice experience. But uh, Jerry, Jerry getting ro- dragged out of his hotel room at 530 to make his six o'clock flight in that tiny little airplane seat ain't going to make him a very happy man. Yeah, yeah. And he, he just so he he kind of blew events off uh, that way. But but yeah, I mean, pretty much anybody else who we ever wanted uh, came in at one point or another, big or small. Uh, they all came. So. Yeah, um, and but the story I heard with Blackwell was, and they, and I remember this. They announced, you know, next week we're going to have uh, Crusher Jerry Blackwell on. It was on TNT, and right. Vince announced mm-hmm. it, and it was never referred to again. And you know, until I started getting the Observer a couple of years later, uh, I was always wondering what the hell happened. And the story I heard, Steve, was that Blackwell, um, you know, showed up at the tapings. They were doing the interviews, and he just got impatient and left. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, I think he was basically falling asleep, and he he did get up and leave. And um, but but another question, Wesley Wolbert asked, would Vern have been smart to get, have? Sorry, would Vern have been smart to have given up everything out west and focused on the Midwest? He owned part of St. Louis. Could he have worked with Harley for Kansas City and the rest of Missouri, Bruiser in Chicago and Indy, or even bought them out? Or but but just stay way more focused on his home base. Sorry if you touched on this before. So that's the question. Well, uh, the answer, I, I, I don't have an answer, Wesley, and I'll tell you why. I don't know what the gates were 
uh, for for Vern shows out west. I don't know what you know what Salt Lake City, San Francisco, uh, etc. I don't know how they were doing Denver, etc. But to answer the question, if the, if you're doing well out there, continue to promote out there. If you're not, pull back into the Midwest, even though that would have been a short term strategy because. You know, I mean, we've talked about this when it comes to, you know, what if Jim Crockett had just stayed in the Carolinas in Virginia? What if Vern, you know, this question, what if Vern had just stayed in the Midwest? Pretty soon you're, you're, gonna, you're going to turn into a minor league circuit doing that. And, you know, maybe short term that might have helped, but long term it was death. Yeah, yeah. No. Long term everything was death as it turned out. But go ahead, <laughs> Steve. I'm sorry. No, that's a, that's a, that's a great answer. I, I can't add anything to that. That says it all right there. All right, Benji Sebastian, how much of a oh, I like this question. <laughs> how much of a difference would it have made had the NWA world class, AWA, all had cable TV and was willing to set egos aside and join together to fight Vince? Steve, what do you think? <laughs> well, it kind of happened. I mean, they they did have this thing called Pro Wrestling USA, where Jim Crockett and uh, Vern put together these mega shows and they even put together this show that was for the New York market, which was supposed to you know, scare Vince like here, they're coming after him in his own market now. But the shows were really, I thought they were really poor, honestly. I mean, they, a lot of it focused on Bob Backlund, who we didn't want to see anymore. They had Billy Graham, who we really didn't want to see in his condition anymore. And it just, it just didn't seem to work. And I mean, and Benji, uh, I mean, your sentiment is great. I mean, and uh, we would love that that they could all work together, all like uh, major promotions against Vince. But when you know, when it, as the old saying goes from Sports Illustrated, uh, they couldn't decide what to order for lunch, much less decide how do we fight Vince. They they just couldn't do it. So it just wasn't meant to be. But John, what do you have to say? I mean, close to what you had to say. I mean. If you look at the way Vern Gagne promoted, and Vern promoted very successfully until right around the middle of 1986. I'm not taking anything off him. And then you look at the way Bill Watts promoted. They couldn't be more polar opposite. I mean, you know, Vern is relying on old guys and nostalgia, and they they do maybe three or four angles a month. Watts did three or four major angles. Excuse me, three or four major angles a year. Forgive me. Watts did three or four major angles a month. I mean, his his television was fast-paced and exciting, must-see TV, and Vern was anything but. And then you have Fritz, who... The, the pearl purpose of world-class championship wrestling was to make Kerry, Kevin, David, and Mike Von Erich local superstars, and it worked for a while. But again, you're looking at a triangle of just you know guys who did things differently. Now, as far as working together, okay, how about this? All right, we'll do an occasional talent exchange. We'll we'll put each other guys over on TV every now and then. You know, the Von Ericks will come to Louisiana or up to Chicago, and every now and then, you know, uh, I guess I don't know, Doctor Death or Ted DiBiase would be in the AWA or wherever they would fit. Maybe you'd have the. Um, you know, have Teddy and Doc against the Von Erichs on a big show in Dallas. 
But at the same time, you know, if you're Fritz von Eric, do you really want to send Kerry and Kevin away for the weekend and try to run shows with, you know, uh, babyface Chris Adams on top? You don't. If you're Bill Watts, do you really want to send Hacksaw Duggan and or Ted DiBiase away for the weekend? No, you don't. And, you know, the best these guys could have done was, okay, look, let's not step on each other's toes. I promise I won't run your territory if you promise not to run mine. But it came a point where that was pointless as well. Like, why is Bill Watts saying no to Dallas? Because Fritz von Erich doesn't want him to work there. You know, he's going to, he at least thinks he's going to make money promoting in Dallas. So why, you know, why is he going to do that? So I had a lot to say on this. I'm I'm not sure it's what everyone wanted to hear. Of course, you want to live in a world where, you know, we all work together and it all comes together and pro wrestling ain't one of those. I can't think of a time that ever really worked. Well, the only thing I can add to that, and that's a great answer, John, is that the WWF had this really strong infrastructure. They had a good office staff. They had marketing people. They had people making the dolls, the LJN and all that stuff. Uh, uh, they, they had, you know the means of getting revenue in-house that these other outfits just didn't have. And and to think that they could all work together and create like an umbrella of uh, infrastructure between the NWA, world-class, AWA, and any other parts that wanted to join. I mean, it's, again, in theory, it's great, but in reality, it's impossible, really. I am a big believer in having a chain of command wherever you go you got to have one person who's in charge uh and you know one thing i think that killed wcw is they had very linear management and they didn't have that one guy in charge and it, it wrecked things you know and, it, and i say that when it comes to you know whatever it is if you have a, a band uh, recording an album, the producer has to be like, look, you guys are doing this my way. Or the guys in the band tell the producer you're doing things my way. One or the other. If you have a football team, you have to have a general manager who the coach answers to, who the assistant coaches answer to. I mean, once again, that, that's the way, in my opinion, it's got to be. And to just have, you know, Vern, Fritz, and and. Watts is kind of, you know, okay, whoever, whatever idea gets two votes from these three guys is the one we're going to promote. It's not going to happen. But by the way, I mean, I I love the question, Benji. Thank you. Because again, it it gives me, it's not that, you know, oh, you're wrong. It's a, it's a great thing to discuss. No, it is a great question. And, and here, here's another question. Uh, Ryan Damon is asking, uh, what were the first fan reactions for more wrestling being available around 1984. Steve, I think you kind of grew up in the same world I did. Uh, I've mentioned this on the show before, and I'm really going to emphasize this time. Like in 1978, 1979, I got one hour of wrestling on TV every week. I got five wrestling matches a week. That was it. (laughs) So my reaction when I got Georgia on cable, when I got world class and on, on syndication, and then, you know, there just became more and more wrestling available on cable. I loved it. Um, at the same time, I remember, you know, in 85, uh, the New England Sports Network was born. And they put on, they had on both WWF Championship Wrestling and All Star Wrestling, and then they started uh, putting on, you know, the the uh, 
the WWF shows from the Boston Garden, which I loved having access to. But at some point, I was like, wow, there's a whole lot of wrestling on. There's like 15 hours, and you know... I I never came to a point where I felt like it was too much, but it felt like I came to a point where, wow, it's a lot. What do you think, Steve? Yeah, I mean, it was 86, 87 for me was that period where I finally had TBS. I finally had uh, Joe Petticino and Gordon Soley, the pro wrestling this week, which I really, really enjoyed. Getting AWA on ESPN, getting world class occasionally on ESPN. And and I even got UWF on a couple of... uh, one on a syndicated channel from upstate New York, and I got UWF on um, the deep on uh, Tempo TV, which is a weird cable thing that we had. But uh, but it was really an exciting time to see all this different wrestling, and and it was really a magical time because you know we didn't really know it at the time around '86, but the territories the, that we knew them were were dying. Uh, we didn't know that you know UWF was only going to be around a few more months or AWA two or three more years. And, uh, you know, I guess at the time we probably never envisioned that it was just going to come down to WWF and WCW and, you know, little sprinkles of uh, Memphis or whatever beyond that. Uh, But it was really, uh, you know, a happy time. And, uh, you know, we're talking about the national expansion in 84. So we're we're not even really getting into uh, all that peak stuff quite yet. We're still just in the the birth pangs of the national expansion. So uh, we have a lot more good stuff to talk about on the show. And, uh, but that's a very good question. It really is. And, you know, one thing, Steve, I mean, I had never really witnessed a promotion shutting down. Um, I, I knew like, you know, they were getting less and less coverage in, in the magazine. So I kind of knew Detroit and Los Angeles had gone away, but it was a very gradual thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, but when Georgia Championship Wrestling went bye-bye, when it, you know, sort of merged with uh, Mid-Atlantic Wrestling, it took a few months for it to happen. But I was like, wow, Georgia Championship Wrestling is no more. And then in 86, I got Championship Wrestling from Florida on cable. Uh, on Sports Channel, and it would be on weird times, so you know you never knew when to catch it. It would be like, oh, we need we need something to put on after the Celtics game, which got over early. Let's throw this on. <laughs> um, and you could tell. I mean, once once I saw Georgia died, it was like I looked at Florida Championship Wrestling. I'm like, you know, this very well may be next, and it was. And then when the UWF slash Old Mid-South died, like, I was shocked. To me, that came out of nowhere. But then I got old tapes of, like, late early 1987 UWF. And let me tell you, on the hard cam there are a whole lot of empty seats Mm -hmm. and had i seen that at the time i may have been like wow this promotion seems like they're clinging desperately to the end you know who i would love to have on the show steve i would love to have missy hyatt on this show because she was right there sure as well missy is smart as can be and, and by that, I mean smart to the business and very intelligent. And number two, she lived through it. 
Like she flew out to Minneapolis or wherever, and there was, you know, Brad Breitzman told me they had the front row filled out at the Met Center, and that was it. He said, you know, there's like maybe a hundred people for this major UWF show, wow. and just you know to to have someone on who who lived through that, who probably saw like you know as the months went on, like the crowds were getting smaller and smaller, and they were. Um, you know, going to pl- new places, you know, uh, that they'd never been before, San Jose, once again, Minneapolis, Chicago, etc., and completely bombing in those cities. And, you know, if you're talent on those shows, you got to be like, wow, you know, am I going to be in the wrestling business next week? <laughs> Well, uh, to to make a comment about uh, what you just said, I think uh, our our dear friend Barry Rose is having a big uh, wrestling convention in uh, Orlando, uh, I think in April, and Missy Hyatt's supposed to be on that show. So maybe you could talk to uh, Barry about getting Missy on uh, on this show. Well, my understanding is that Missy retired from podcasting after she was on Barry and Jeff's show. No, I didn't know so, that. Uh-oh. <laughs> Sorry I mentioned that. So, <laughs> and so, yeah, maybe I, I might, you know, hopefully she will at some point have cooled off enough. And I will, I you know, if I could get in touch with her and just say, look, I have this really specific topic I want you to talk about. Can you spare a half an hour? But we shall see. There you go. Anyway, Mark Matsuo asked, would Gino Hernandez, if they got him, would have been a good opponent for Hulk Hogan? Any thoughts on a Hulk Hogan versus Gino Hernandez program, Steve? You know, Gino was was a smaller guy, so he really wouldn't be somebody who you would immediately think for Hogan. But, oh, I'm glad you said that. But but uh, but you you know he he could have been um, you know if everything had had worked out differently uh, if he had lived uh, to 87 and you know when Piper's gone you know maybe with his his gift of gab if he had been around in 87 maybe he could have taken over Piper's pit he could have been this loudmouth uh, talker and and uh, eventually you know uh, been a top heel and then gone against Hogan but it wasn't meant to be he wasn't around so Gino Hernandez has to this day okay this kind of unfortunate rep as a guy who was too small and yes in 1978 Gino Hernandez was too small in 1982 Gino Hernandez was too small in 1985 and it's right there on Peacock Gino was getting bigger and bigger and if you had tuned in to see him for the first time uh, you know, in 85, you would never have called him a small guy. He wasn't, I had someone tell me, yeah, he was carry sized. No, he was not carry sized, but he was, he was bigger than Kevin. He was way bigger than Chris Adams. Wow. So I, I think, you know, had Gino survived and had, you know, had he been willing to jump to the WWF, which is absolutely, I, I can't see him saying no, especially with, you know, world class and the, the shape that it was. Um, it's possible. I could see a run with Hernandez and Hogan and, you know, just a house show run. I'm not talking, you know, main event WrestleMania, but, you know, if, if they could do, if they could have done Hulk Hogan versus Harley Race, uh, a two-match series around the horn in 1987, I think they certainly could have done Hulk Hogan and Gino Hernandez. You know, could have, yes. Would have, I don't know. Yeah, yeah. G- Gino facially had the look for WWF. I mean, he was good-looking enough to do it. Uh, 
But um, yeah, I mean, he was just, you know, unfortunately passed away too too soon to do this. Uh, so I've got a question for you. Uh, Mark Roland asked. Uh, Mark Rock and Roland. <laughs> since the WWF in 84 was like a kettle call meeting, meaning Vince was taking all the major stars in different territories, what if Vince offered Dusty more money to come in in 84 rather than Dusty going to JCP? Since Vince was already familiar with Dusty's drawing power from the MSG appearances, wouldn't that be a smart move to keep JCP from being a potential threat? I, I think absolutely, Vince. I know Vince wanted Dusty. He got him eventually under different circumstances, of course. You know, not answering this doesn't answer Mark's question, but I it drives me nuts when people say, you know, oh they never tried to bury or embarrass Dusty Rhodes with the polka dots. Oh please, <laughs> this guy, <laughs> come on, <laughs> you know. Yeah, uh, I mean they they give they give Ted DiBiase's uh, manservant the name Virgil, and that's not a coincidence. And when when Dusty desperately needed a job, Vince Vince laid into him, and, and you know you can turn around and say, yeah, but he was a main event guy the whole time. Yes, he did, but he was a main event fat guy dancing around in polka dots doing embarrassing skits on TV. They let him have it. But now to answer Mark's question, I think the WWF would have benefited greatly for having Dusty Rhodes on board. Uh, he was not only a huge star in Florida. But anywhere he went, he was a major star. He headlined the Carolinas. He headlined in Georgia. He headlined in Mid-South. So it, it would have been a, a tremendous uh, a, an addition for Vince. Just that I, I think Dusty, uh, just Crockett gave him a better offer, including uh, the booking job. And that's something Vince was not going to offer Dusty. You know, I kind of look at it this way. It's like uh, when the WWF brought this whole national campaign going forward and Hogan was the face of it, I think um, – they were trying to, in a certain way, say this is not your this is not your daddy's wrestling. This is a brand new wrestling. This is something different. And I think I think Vince, in his mind, thought that Dusty really represented the old fashioned views of wrestling. You know, wrestling guys are fat and ugly and and uh, have blotches on their belly and all this. And you know, I, I think I think he was happy letting Crockett have him as the face of their promotion. And just, really? Yeah, just being being you know him and being representing the South, representing you know old school wrestling. And Vince was into sports entertainment, and he had guys with these you know exceptional bodies, bodybuilding guys. And uh, so I, I, you know when they did bring Dusty in, they gave him that demeaning role. You know you're gonna wear po- polka dots, uh, but Dusty, you know because he is so charismatic and he was he was great at everything he did. He got that over, but uh, but I think Vince was really trying to to, sh- to show him, hey, you can work in uh, you know the big leagues, but we're not gonna make you as big as you think you are. I think you know what, Steve. I, I two things. Number one, I mean, Dusty. He got over wherever he went. Um, and again, I was very at the time. I was very surprised when Vince brought him in in 1989 because you know I thought Dusty uh, was by then was a shell of his former self. And I was wrong. You know, he got he got over. Of course, they they put him against Randy Savage. That's a that's a good way to get over. Right. That's um, true. But I, and look at it this way. If Crockett 
if if Vince hired Dusty instead of Crockett, who's Crockett's number one guy to go national with? I mean, that's a, that's a major void without Dusty. Yeah, and and really to Dusty's credit, um, I I know his ego kind of demanded that he become like the big booker of one of the major national promotions. I think he, I think he really felt like he had earned it, and I, and I would say he he did earn it all those years of being the booker for Florida, coming up with great ideas and things. Uh, but uh, you know, as a lot of people have said, Dusty had these great you know dreams and visions and appetites. But, you know, he didn't have the ability to rein himself in, and Jim Crockett didn't have the ability to rein Dusty in. So, therefore, they're buying planes, they're buying offices in Dallas, Texas, you know, they're doing all these crazy things. And, and, and shortly thereafter, the, they were ready to sell the company because there was no money in the bank. So, it's just a sad, a sad um, outcome of what happened. Yeah, uh, and I will say this now, <laughs> once again, you know, uh, Post-82, Bob Backlund gets it from me. Ole Anderson, the booker, gets it from me. Uh, Post-87, Dusty, I will kick around all day. But Dusty did an awesome job in the Carolinas as the booker in 84. He basically put a bulldozer to the territory and rebuilt it, and that's not easy. Great 85, great 86, and then, like, beginning of 87, it felt like he had completely run out of ideas. It's like you're driving your car and everything's fine until that one last drop of gas is gone and things are not moving the way they're supposed to. Yeah. And that's how I see Dusty. He had a great run, but when the run was over, Jim Crockett Jr. did not realize it. Uh, He never realized it, to be honest with you. No, no, you're you're absolutely right. I mean, we've talked about it on the show before. He was he he was fighting for Dusty, you know, pretty much, you know, right up until the time the ink was signed on the Turner deal. So, oh no, Steve, it was after the Turner deal. <laughs> Even after <laughs> Dusty had already killed Crockett's company, and in early '89, Crockett was still writing letters uh, as an advisor saying, "You need to make Dusty Rhodes Booker." <laughs> I know, that's, that's ridiculous. I'm not, I'm not making that up. He was. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Amazing. Anyway, we we love Jim Crockett Jr., but he, he just couldn't see past his his love for Dusty Rhodes. Anyway, uh, Chad Olson asked, if Hulk Hogan hadn't left the AWA, would Jumbo Saruda still have won the AWA title in February 1984? It seems strange that they went with a top Japan guy as a headliner and pivoted to the switch with Jumbo. Any thoughts on this, Steve? Well, and I've said this before on the show, I, I kind of think that Vern liked using uh, these different international stars as his champion. I mean, we know about him essentially selling the title to Otto Vance for the uh, money that Otto paid for it. I mean, he had uh, Jumbo Saruda. He had Rick Martel from Canada. Uh, he had, of course, the American stars. But I think he liked having these these international stars to give the AWA more of an international feeling and make it may, maybe make it feel more major league in that way. But, uh, you know, it, it, it didn't really mean anything at the box office. It was just, uh, you know, didn't really mean much at all, I don't think. No, I, I to answer Chad's question, um, I don't think anything would have changed, and I'll tell you why. Right or wrong, and ultimately it proved wrong, Vern Gagne, you know, Hulk Hogan did not fit 
Vern Gagne's uh, vision as what the AWA champion should have been. He was still saying this in 1987 after <laughs> WrestleMania 3 that Hulk Hogan was a poor choice as world champion. So I, I, you're pretty dug in if you're saying that after WrestleMania 3. And so, no, I don't think uh, anything would have changed. I think that... Uh, you know, he he would have transitioned the belt the way he did from Bockwinkle to uh, Jumbo Saruta and then to Rick Martel. Well, well, this next question I think you really like because we've already kind of touched on it. But uh, Michael Hulse, who's had some health issues, so we give him a shout out. I hope he's feeling a whole lot better. Uh, Michael is asking, what would have happened if Jim Barnett and the Briscoes didn't throw in with Vince? Honestly, I think... And we've we talked about this before. I think, in a way, what happened with the Briscoes selling their Georgia shares to Vince was a blessing in disguise to the uh, to the opposition of Vince. Could because had that never happened, Crockett would have never gotten on WTBS. So at at the at the end of the day, I don't think much would have changed. Uh, Vince never really utilized that WTBS spot, in my opinion, the way he should have. I think Vince should have been like, oh my God, I've got this insane asset, this built-in audience. WTBS was on pretty much every cable system, and Vince treated it as a throwaway show. I, I would have absolutely... You know, instead of just okay, well, we're focused on syndication now. I would have made that WTBS a, a first-rate show, maybe even in the manner that they made Monday Night Raw a first-rate show in, uh, in 1993. Yeah, yeah, that definitely could have happened. I, I, I kind of think um, if Barnett and the Briscoes didn't uh, go with Vince. Uh, I think that uh, Ole would have wanted to go head-to-head with Vince in New York. And, uh, I mean, we ended up seeing a Crockett come to the Meadowlands in 84. Uh, I think they, if they, if, if uh, Ole and Barnett and, and those people had the wherewithal to get the Meadowlands or get the Nassau Coliseum or one of those other buildings, I mean, they would have gone head-to-head with Vince uh, in other Parts uh, kind of kind of like what we saw with JCP against Vince uh, in the in the mid '80s up until uh, until the bitter end, um, but but I think I think Georgia really wouldn't have lasted that lo- much longer. I, I really don't think uh, I don't think um, Barnett and Oli. I don't think we're meant to last a long time together. I think that was one of the reasons why the Barnett sold out. Anyhow, I mean they they weren't meant to last a long long time, and the Briscoes were good businessmen. I mean they they knew when it was uh they could see the writing on the wall just like the funks had seen the writing on the wall uh, they could see that vince was really ready to make his move and uh they'd rather get a return on their investment rather than lose everything i mean you know once again not to crack on Oli too much but if you're jack and jerry briscoe and you're like okay I can rely on Ole Anderson managing a wrestling promotion, or I can rely on Vince McMahon. Uh, don't even—I don't even need to say another word. There you <laughs> go. You're, you know, but anyway, best wishes also to Michael Hulse. I know he's had some health issues, and we're we're thinking of you, Mike. 
Yeah, I love this question from Nick Coliatus. Dr. Nick, a lot of times I feel like we as wrestling fans focus on specific wrestlers, events, championships, booking, etc. But I would argue that the merchandise, magazines, action figures, video games, cartoon, ice cream bars, mainstream TV appearances were equally if not more important than establishing the WWF as the wrestling organization to the general public. What are your thoughts on that, Steve? Well, I think that's also a very, very good question. And, and I've been pondering it ever since I read it uh, yesterday or earlier today. Um, the first thing that came to my mind when reading that was um, the start of mid eighties WWF that, uh, <laughs> that little animated opening on there shows, uh, you know, and, and you'd always hear the recognized symbol of excellence in sports entertainment. You know, you, when you'd hear that opening to their all their classic shows, um, to me, that wasn't any different than seeing the Paramount Mountain uh, before a movie or, uh, you know, uh, uh, something that MLB would do or the NFL would do. In fact, I think uh, Vince, in doing that before his shows, uh, and it was a lot like the MT. TV opening there, the da 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 da, da you know, when MTV yep. would have their videos. I mean, it, it was it was letting you know this is the WWF. We are a brand. We are we are a name brand. You know, and, and pe- people like brands. They like Coca Cola. They they like things that are American. And uh, Vince was all those things. And because the other outfits uh, didn't really have those things. I mean, eventually, I know WCW would kind of you know put their foot in the water a little bit with the you know we wrestle and they had they came up with their own little gimmicky things but wwf to me at least in and and nick is touching on this you had this show on cbs for kids the the cartoon show you had the nbc saturday night main event you had the shows on usa their syndicated shows which were the, the real major shows at the time and and you even had the house shows from msg in boston and whatever else I mean, it really, um, they covered every, every, every box. They checked every box. I mean, what do you think, John, about that question? First of all, it's a really good point and a really good question. Um, if you're listening to the show, you are not the average wrestling fan, okay? <laughs> you are not the average citizen out there. And sometimes and I, I've noticed this, you know, even going back to the 80s, as a hardcore wrestling fan or as hardcore wrestling fans, we can get caught up in our own little gold goldfish bowl sometimes. It's really true to the average person who's, you know, kids watch wrestling or, you know, is a minor fan or maybe not even a fan of wrestling. You know, the WWF was professional wrestling. <laughs> even if Rod Trongard told you 20 times a show that the <laughs> AWA was the major league of professional wrestling, you knew better. You knew that the WWF was the promotion uh, with the really good uh, TV production. And yes, they had the magazines, the merchandise, the action figures, etc., all of which, you know, the AWA had action figures, but you couldn't find them. And, you know, to the average person, the WWF was pro wrestling. It was like, you know, the WWF was like, you know, Kiss or Aerosmith uh, playing at Madison Square Garden and WC or uh, the NWA was the Ramones playing a CBGB. Yeah, I think they were more like the David Allen Coe band, maybe. <laughs> Yeah, really good point. <laughs> well, but yeah, I mean that's that's a really good point that Nick makes that you know if you're 
if you're stand, if you're if someone puts a, puts a blindfold on you and walks you up to a building, puts your face right against that building, and they're like, "Okay, how tall is that building?" You're not going to know. You need to take a few steps back. Right. And sometimes, as hardcore fans, we don't do that. Yeah, I, I know. Um, um, actually, Brian, I'm as guilty as anyone, by the way. Well, well, actually, Brian last had a really good uh, comment about that on one of the recent Cornette shows about the wrestling bubble. I mean, when you're so into the wrestling bubble and you, you don't really know what's going on outside the world, uh, sometimes you don't have the right perspective. But, but on, yes. uh, but on another on another topic, uh, Jeff Goldman is asking. Let's say Vince went bankrupt in 1985. Was there anyone else in wrestling who could have managed a national expansion that would have survived like WWE has? Or what would it have taken an outsider to do that, assuming nationalization was inevitable? I think the answer is on the outside. All of the other candidates, Watts, Crockett, Barnett, Jarrett, were too flawed in different ways to make it work. Watts was too old school in terms of the management style. Jarrett was too conservative to take the risk that Vince did. Vern was too old, etc. So he's asking, was there anyone else in wrestling who could have managed a national expansion and survived? Okay, let me take the premise of the question. Let's let's say Vince went bankrupt in 1985. Yes, I will definitely answer the question based on that premise, but I also need to point out that in the 80s, it was being reported as the WWF was going to be in major trouble Maybe even going under if WrestleMania wasn't as big a success as it was, uh, or maybe Vince would have needed to take on an outside investor had WrestleMania one bombed. And it has come out like over the last five years that it was nowhere near as close to that happening as had been reported, you know, 30 years prior. Um, you know, if WrestleMania had bombed, uh, you know, Vince was not going to be in trouble it would have been it would have been a a blow but it wouldn't have put him under but i will go with the premise of let's say vince goes under in 1985 i i think pro wrestling was popular enough uh, and had been popular enough through the years where someone would have picked up the ball and, and run with it once again i think that someone would have been bill watts now you know would bill watts still be running in 1995 had Vince gone under 10 years earlier hard to say uh, but I think I think Ole, I think Bill Watts would have been the guy. I think Ole had the asset that was WTBO. No, that's right. He didn't have it anymore by 1985. So yeah, I think you know and, and Crockett I think would have continued doing strong in the Carolinas and Virginia. But eventually, it would have been one national company no matter what. Your thoughts, Steve? You know, I, I think for what it's worth, I think Vince did actually file for bankruptcy once or twice uh, in his prior to the national expansion. Uh, it might have been during the uh, the uh, Evil Knievel um, spaceship uh, <laughs> launch there that didn't do too well. Uh, but uh, obviously, he, he worked his way through any setbacks he had. Um, I mean, you know, going with the, the, the theme of the question, if Vince had gone bankrupt and was like completely out of it and couldn't come back to wrestling, which, I mean, that's kind of a, a you know, I don't know if that's a, <laughs> possible as Vince seems so, uh, you know, in, unstoppable. Um, you know, I, I think I think maybe Ted Turner had a you know a, he definitely had a relationship with Jim Barnett, and I think Jim Barnett um, 
would have been kind of the behind the scenes guy with Ted Turner financing him, but you needed that that guy like a Bill Watts to come in and make the wrestling decisions and, and book the talent and and get the talent on board. Um, yeah, I mean they could have made it work, but again, um, you know Vince Vince uh, was thinking way outside the box that none of these other older wrestling guys really had the uh, capability of doing. It seems. You know, you brought up a really good point, and that is that, you know what? I'm changing my answer. If Vince had gone under in 1985, I think, you know, what if Bill Watts had approached Ted Turner, who was always a wrestling guy, not a, not a big fan or anything like that, but he appreciated what wrestling did for WTBS and said, yeah, hey, you know, what if Watts had said to Turner – you know, hey, Vince failed, but I think you you could succeed, mm-hmm. and you know we could partner up and we can do this. I know the wrestling business, you know the broadcasting industry. Let's do this now. I was hoping we could get to all the questions, but some of the questions, you know, they we've already kind of covered them, mm-hmm. and we're running a little bit low on time. Okay. So I'll tell you what, I'm going to skip to Jamie Hammer's question. Hammer time. If Ken Patera does not go to jail. Does he end up getting King Kong Bundy's spot at WrestleMania too? What do you think, Steve? Uh, n- not a chance, really. I mean, uh, I mean, uh, that's my answer. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. We we can go on to another question here and uh, see if there's anything left. Uh, well, no. Let me talk a little bit about what Jamie had to say first. Sure. In late '84, early '85, when when Patera Stud and Heenan became a thing, I was a big Ken Patera fan, and I was not a big John Studd fan. Even before I got the magazines, I was like, this guy's kind of lame. And in that tag team, in that faction, I mean, Big John Studd was clearly Batman, and Ken Patera was Robin, and I resented it. I <laughs> resented it. I was like, you know, Ken Patera is the real talent in this tag team, but they're not... Uh, that's not his role, and I didn't like it. But to answer Jamie's question, I I can't imagine if it if it had not been Bundy, it would have been someone else not named Ken Patera. It actually might have been Big John Stud. Who knows? Yeah, yeah. I I I, I mean, I mean, the only other thing I could say about Ken Patera was of note was that that uh, there was supposedly a plan that he was going to main event WrestleMania 4 uh, around the time that he was coming back post-WrestleMania 3, and and then he injured his arm, and everything kind of went haywire after that. But, uh, and he didn't get over. Yeah, yeah. He was just he just gained weight, and his, his arm didn't really repair right, I don't think. And his, he couldn't do the big power moves like he used to. So, yeah, he was never really in consideration for anything after that. No, um, I know that when they brought him back in 1987, it was it was on the table. You know, a year is a long time in wrestling, but a, a year from now, we might have Patera turn on Hogan and have that be the wrestle uh, the main event of WrestleMania uh, four. But a you know, Patera, as much of a fan as I was when he came back in '87, he did not get over despite them putting a lot of television time behind him. 
Again, big Patera fan, but that was a bomb. <laughs> That's the only way I can look at it. Patera coming back in 87, bombed, and thus, you know, no WrestleMania 4 main event. All right. Uh, Kevin Waterhouse, do you think the WrestleMania main event could have worked better as Hulk Hogan, Mr. T, and Cindy Lauper against Piper, Warndorf, and Moolah? Uh, just the way Piper kicking Cindy is just seeing her slap Piper in the match would have gotten a massive pop. Steve, any thoughts on this from you? Um, no, I, I mean, WrestleMania, the way it was, was really kind of perfect. Uh, I mean, even we look back on it now, I mean, it, it, it was what it was. It was it was set up really nicely and uh, quite effective. I think uh, that that was, you know, we, we love to suspend disbelief, but I think that scenario would have been a little bit too, too much suspending disbelief. Yeah, yeah. I don't think Cindy Lauper was in. I mean, they were having enough problems with you know Mr. T getting in the ring, and you know I'm sure you've heard the story, Steve. That that morning, Piper and Orndorff had to call Mr. T and say, you know, don't worry, we're not gonna go off script and then make you look bad. Um, and you know, just having I, I think adding Mula and Cindy would have brought the match down, not not up. But anyway, uh, let me see. Just want to get to the good stuff. I mean, it's all good stuff, but a lot of this we have. Oh, here we go. Lance O'Donnell. Uh, I've heard that Paul Orndorff being on standby, if you will, in case Andre the Giant wasn't ready to go to the ring in WrestleMania. If that had come to pass and Andre couldn't go and Orndorff was in the match, what happens? Who wins? How much has history changed? Any thought on, on thoughts on that, Steve? Uh, you know, I, I thought, I thought, um, I thought some weird thoughts about this. I mean, I mean, if, 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 if that scenario had happened, I mean, they, they would have had to shown like some kind of a video of Andre in a hospital bed with him saying something like, you know, you know, Hogan, I'm coming for you or something like that, you know, and, and, you know, to, to keep that dream alive that they would eventually have a match. And and if it was Hogan against Orndorff, I mean, I think that they would have their standard excellent match like they always did. And, and I think, you know, not, not unlike what Randy Savage did in WrestleMania five, I think despite his best efforts, Orndorff would have had to, uh, suck it up and take the big leg drop in the middle and uh and hogan would go over and the crowd would go ape shit you know it would have been yeah. for your typical expectation now what i've heard over the years was yes that was the case paul orndorff was the standby in case you know a week or two weeks before the match andre just you know couldn't get out of bed mm-hmm. um and i think that would have been a massive disappointment to people but i i have I have heard that over the years. I have seen a, a, a shoot interview with Paul Orndorff, obviously, when he was still with us, when he just had a, a blank look on his face, and he's just like, I've never heard anything about that. I don't know anything about it. And I don't disbelieve him, but I also don't just take that as uh, on face value. Um, you know, maybe Orndorff was told not to say anything, and he didn't say anything. I can't help but think, Steve, you know, they had the ending to the cage match on Saturday night's main event where both guys were leaving the cage and with slow motion replay, they showed that Orndor's feet had hit the ground first, therefore theoretically making him the winner, but the ref saw Hogan's feet land first. Why else do you have that finish unless you are, unless... 
unless it's an insurance policy. Why else are you doing that? No, that, that's And that's great. why I believe I believe Warndorf was a standby. No, that, that that makes a lot of sense. I never even really thought about like why why did they not have a uh, definitive definitive ending to their feud? Uh, uh, you know, like you, you say, that did leave a little bit of uh, um, you know left unanswered. There was no really decisive blow off match in that feud. I mean, I, I guess that match turned out to be you know their blow-off match but uh mm-hmm. but, but orndorff never really did get a, a you know a huge major loss uh de- definitive loss in a pay-per-view yeah, or but, on a tv show or anything no that's how they ended it and what they could have done if had andre not been able to go just you know bobby heenan announces that he's got this court injunction where they looked at the tape and guess what paul orndorff has been declared the wwf champion and he'll be defending the title uh, at wrestlemania 3 against hulk hogan i mean it just based on what we have in front of us it all makes perfect sense two more questions we're really going long here <laughs> um Oh, here's one. Nick Minichi. This is a good question. How much do you think the expansion hurt guys who could have been stars in territory but were just mid-card to curtain jerkers because of the amount of talent in the WWF? Can you think of people who could have had run successful runs in territory that because, you know, that were became losers in fans' eyes because of this? Um Steve, do you remember the Superstar Wrestling game? I'm pretty sure we've talked about this. Uh, uh, Was that a board game, or was that more like a VHS game, or...? It was the board game, and you got, like, the top... It it came with, like, Stratomatic cards or sheets, whatever, from the top 40 wrestlers in the world. And it it pointed out to me in 1983 that, yeah, you know, some guys who were untouchable when they were territories were very much mid-carders or bottom-carders when there was only one federation. And to answer, you know, uh, Nick Minetti's questions, I think it really hurt guys who could have been stars had there been more territories but there are only so many spaces in the wwf and the nwa which is what it boiled down to just you know uh, early 1987 and it really did hurt guys it, it really hurt dick slater it really hurt terry taylor i mean more than just that yeah, I mean there were there were a lot of younger talented guys that uh were lost in the shuffle. I mean, Barrio was good. Uh I mean, uh I mean, you you saw guys, you know, journeyman wrestlers like Terry Gibbs who was, you know, working with Anabolic every night to help him learn the trade. I mean, it, but but you know the thing was, I mean, you had guys uh that were, uh, you know, we'll use Scott Casey as an example. I mean, Scott Casey and in the WWF in 87, 88, uh, he was probably making more working prelims in WWF than he was main eventing in, in promotions in Texas for for years. So I'm certain of that. Yeah. So, so I mean, um, I mean, we, again, we can all romanticize about the death of the territories. We all wish things had stayed the way they were in the early 80s and the 70s, but things happened and and uh you know and the guys went where the money was you know scott casey would rather do jobs or win prelim matches than be a main eventer and making uh maybe a third of what he was making 
I mean, I remember in 1987, uh, stretcher Jack Hart was getting a, not a big push in Memphis, but a push in Memphis, uh, being managed by Paulie Dangerously, and he just made the life decision that, you know, he would rather go to the WWF and get the steady paycheck, losing a hundred percent of his matches than getting a push in Memphis, because that's where the money was, and it totally made sense. Yeah, Steve, I remember uh, maybe 25 years ago when uh, Taz came to the WWF after being the top guy in ECW for God knows how long. And guess what? He's just a mid-card guy in the WWF. I mean, that I think that really stung ECW. It just, you know, I don't even think Vince did it on purpose. It's just like, look, you know, you were a small, a big fish in a small pond, and now you're in the WWF. And we can't push you the way you were pushed in ECW because you're not going to get over. Well, well, sometimes they sometimes they try to make it happen. Like I like in, in his case, they gave him a huge win over Kurt Angle. But after that, it was like you're you're back to the drawing board. Yes, start over. And and same with Kerry Von Erich. I mean, Kerry Von Erich came in had that huge win over Kurt Hennig at SummerSlam at the Spectrum. And uh, and you thought they were gonna you know make something out of a Texas tornado, the, the IC run was fairly brief, and he was just another guy before you knew it. Yes, he was, and you know they. I think they didn't push Kerry quite the way they should have, uh, but at the same time, you know Kerry's ceiling in 1990 on a national level was nowhere near what it was in a regional promotion in 1984. Finally, last question, Tim Tetralt. If Vince doesn't get Cindy Lauper, Mr. T, and MTV involved, would he have been able to make the national expansion successful? Your thoughts, Steve? I personally think that... Uh... Um, Vince getting Cindy Lauper, Mr. T, and especially MTV involved was what got the WWF to cross over into the cultural zeitgeist, if you want to use that term. Uh, I think I think them getting on MTV was huge. Uh, if they hadn't gotten on MTV or hadn't gotten on M- on NBC, yeah, they would have had Hulk Hogan, and they would have probably still been the box office kings of wrestling. But wrestling was this kind of a, you know, kind of a bootleg uh, thing that people, you know, most people didn't know about other than it was like a guilty pleasure type show. But because of what Vince did, wrestling became uh, more respected, more more well-known, more looked upon. I mean, Bobby Heenan even said in the shoot interview that, you know, we're not looked upon like circus performers anymore. We're looked upon as like respectable entertainers. And, uh, and I think, uh, yeah, well, well, what's your thoughts on that, John? Well, to answer his question, I do think he would have been able to make the national expansion successful. Would he have been able to make it as successful as he did? Not even close, in my opinion. And Steve, this is why I think this is a good question for both you and I and to wrap up this show, yes. because we lived through it. We were there. We were kids or you know, teenagers in the 80s. Steve, when I starting... In, I think it was August 1st, 1981, as of that date, if you were with your friend, or if I was with one of my friends, I'll put it that way, and we went to our friend's house, and the friend had a brother or sister who was already home, 
almost 100% of the time MTV was on. <laughs> okay. And that remained a constant in into 1985. That's how big MTV was. I think, you know, if you're in your 20s or 30s, you don't understand how huge MTV was in the early and mid 80s and the WWF getting on MTV uh you know made a huge difference and we also lived through this too i mean you know Cindy Lauper had a huge 1984 you it was i can't imagine someone not knowing who Cindy Lauper was she was such a big name and she was all over the place and even if you didn't listen to the pop stations on the radio she, her face was all over you know cover of magazines everywhere mr t same thing he um became a big star when rocky three came out in 1982 he had his own television show he was a mainstream celebrity and once again you know yeah i think the national expansion would have gotten over without them but nowhere near as big i think you know my understanding is that cindy lopper doesn't want to be in the wwf hall of fame but if she ever wanted to be, she should be like the lead person that year. And you know, Mr. T, same thing. Yeah, yeah. Well, Mr. Mr. T is in the Hall of Fame, but uh, oh, thank you. But, okay, but but, uh, but no, but that that's a great recap, and I and I agree with you. This is a really a great place to end the show because we really uh, covered every base, and and thank you to all the great people for sending in their questions. It was really uh, fun trying to answer your questions and uh, looking back on the national expansion years. Also a good reason that it's good to end here. I'm starting to get really hungry. (laughs) Steve, thank you for taking the time for this uh, extra large edition of Stick to Wrestling. No, thank you, John. Thanks for uh, putting the questions out there and uh, really enjoyed doing this with you. And I look forward to our next episode which I think is going to be National Expansion once again, February 1984. I have to review the... uh audio we already recorded but i think we're going to get another one of those next week i want to thank uh brian last for giving us this forum on the arcadian vanguard podcast network i want to thank lou kippelman for all of the great work that he does each and every week not only producing stick to wrestling but for being a great team player as far as like uh being flexible and accommodating when it comes to recording times and of course i want to thank all of you for listening thank you very much and by the way thank you for all of the uh, kind words we got a really we got really positive reviews on last week's show with bob smith so bob thank you again and finally this has been a production of the arcadian vanguard podcast network we'll see you next week This concludes our podcast day.